We continue our series on 1 Corinthians and we now hit some of the problems that the church had. So one of the challenges of 1 Corinthians is that it's a letter that addresses a whole number of areas. The section we're looking at today is 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 to 17. It's dealing about division uh, and so I'm going to read that. I'm reading from the NIV, but please do follow along in whatever translation you have. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 to 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptised in my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. So let me reiterate, we're looking at issues that the church is facing. Now, you'll remember that Paul started, we looked at last week, and he declared how amazing the church was. You remember that? He was talking that they were enriched in every way, that they have every spiritual gift. You know, he spoke about an amazing church. And now we're seeing that actually, uh, there are some issues that are on the go. And this particular one, really, even though it's division, I've called this morning dealing with conflict because that's what I think it's actually dealing with. People are at odds with one another and Paul is giving a way through. In addressing these problems, Paul is helping the church to journey to maturity. You know, we have this picture that Paul gave of a church that's blessed, it's full of grace, and then I'm going to read in a moment, and you'll see what the church was actually like, and it will surprise you because those two things do not seem to marry together. But what Paul is doing in addressing the problems is he's saying to the church, come on, let's move on to maturity. Remember, no church is perfect. You know, over the years, having worked with different churches and different parachurch organisations, when there is conflict, people leave a church. When they disagree with something, they leave a church. But the church they go to isn't actually any better. It's just got a different bunch of problems and a different bunch of conflict, and we've got to deal with it. Can you imagine, I just want you to think for a moment, think of your family either your siblings or uh, if you're, you've got children, think of your family. Imagine what your family would look like if its members left and joined another family every time you had an argument. I mean, you'd have been part of like 50 families by now. 
But the thing is, as we get through conflict, it makes the family stronger. So that song's going around in my head, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. My wife is laughing now. So Paul is addressing these problems that are in the church. How did he know about these problems? Well, the letter he's writing, he's writing some three years after he had visited and been with the church. And the letter, as we saw, is, comes from somebody having visited him from Chloe's household and said, hey, this is what's happening at the church. And then the church themselves had sent a letter to him saying, we've got these problems, Paul, what do we do? So Paul is addressing this first issue that there is a division in the church. Here people are not in agreement. They thought and spoke differently about things. This caused them quarrels and it led to a polarization around different leaders. It caused division in the church and that was breaking the church apart. So what was going on in the church in Corinth? Well, there's a guy called Craig Blomberg, he's a scholar, and he writes this about the church. Imagine a church racked by divisions. Powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his band of loyal followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother, and instead of disciplining him, many in the church boast of his freedom in Christ to behave in such a way. Believers sue each other in secular courts. Some like to visit prostitutes. As a backlash against this rampant immorality, another faction in the church is promoting celibacy, complete sexual abstinence for all believers as the Christian ideal. Still, others, uh, debates, sorry, still other debates rage around how decisively new Christians should break with their pagan past. Disagreement about men's and women's roles in the church add to the confusion. As if all this were not enough, alleged prophecies and speaking in tongues occur regularly, but not always in a constructive fashion. A significant number of these immature Christians do not even believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Wow. Can you imagine being part of that church? Can you think, well, that doesn't seem to be in line with what Paul said they were. He said that they were enriched. He said they had every spiritual gift. Well, the simple thing is that no church is perfect. And we might think, Simon, that these are some major issues. Yeah, they are. Now, how does that apply to us? Because, of course, I'm speaking to a saintly bunch of people and you guys don't have conflicts. It's all good, but just in case... Let me talk a little about how I think this applies to us. Paul's comment about disagreement does affect each one of us. Are we really one in heart and mind? You see, in our culture, in the UK, when we disagree, we tend to disagree inwardly. Somebody says something or somebody does something we don't like, we don't necessarily say something, we kind of think something. You ever done that? Oh, I didn't like that. Mm. We might go home and moan about it with our wife or husband or family or siblings. We might say, well, I didn't agree with that. I think that was wrong, etc. But we don't actually say something to the person involved. 
The difficulty is, is that we need to work out how in church we support one another through challenges that we have. If we disagree with a sermon or a Bible study, if we disagree with an action, we tend to hold on to our personal view. We kind of say, well, yeah, you know, this is what they say, but I believe something else. Let me ask a question. Is that an act of unity? Paul would say, no, it's not. You know, one of our problems that we have is we have the Bible available to us in our mother tongue. And so everyone feels that they can interpret the Bible for themselves. And, and although there is a measure of truth with that, I would say to you this morning, I don't think that that's fully true. I do not believe that every believer can interpret all of the Bible correctly. Why am I saying that? Well, I'm saying it for a number of reasons. Firstly, in Ephesians 4, God says that he gives teachers and preachers to the church. Well, why do we need teachers and preachers if everybody can interpret the Bible perfectly? Doesn't make sense, does it? God gives some people a gift where they can take the Bible and they can preach it or teach it and bring out the truth to help people understand. Let's face it, if we took every YouTube video on a particular passage that people are preaching, we would have as many variations of the theme as there are YouTube videos. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that some people aren't doing a good job. Owning and reading a Bible is no guarantee to holding correct truth. In the same way that the Pharisees 2,000 years ago, they knew the Old Testament off by heart, and yet they were the ones who crucified and condemned Jesus Christ. I mean, how do you do that? Owning the text is no guarantee to truth. Why, why am I focusing on that? Because as believers, our authority comes from Scripture. It doesn't come from our feelings. It doesn't come from our experience. It doesn't even come from our church tradition. It comes from what the Bible teaches. One of the challenges that we face is that often we know the truth that the Bible teaches, but we live in contradiction to it. And we don't say anything. We kind of just... I don't know, process through within that. Division exists, not only if it's loud and polarised, but if we are not unified in heart and mind. In fact, I would argue very strongly that division starts in the mind. It starts when we begin to think a thought about things we're not happy with and we need to deal with that. We, we can't leave those things in our mind. If we leave it, it will fester and it will lead us to a point where we leave the church and we go somewhere else and then we cause a fracture within relationships that we have. So how does Paul deal with division? Remember that he is dealing with conflict amongst believers. I do not have a solution for people who do not follow Jesus. Why? Why is there no solution? Because there's no common ground. There is absolutely no common ground. For us as believers, our common ground is the Bible. 
The Bible says and teaches a truth, then we rally around that. But in the world, with Ukraine and Russia, there is no common ground. There is a difference of opinion, and they are going to war against that, and I have no solution. God calls us to be of one heart and mind. Now, that seems a really tall order. As I was reading that, I thought, do you really mean that? Does it mean that we need to be of one heart and mind over every jot and tittle in the Bible? Well, if I look at the lives of the apostles, I think, well, actually, they weren't. They weren't in agreement over every single thing. I think of Paul and Barnabas when they had a disagreement about Mark travelling with them. I think of Paul's disagreement with Peter when Peter was siding with the Jews and Paul called him out on it. And yet the point is this, they were still in complete submission to one another. That's what it's really about. Remember, the greatest in the church is the servant. It isn't the one who has the best oratory gift. It isn't the one who has the best natural gift. It is those, Jesus said, who serve other people. When you think about the way the Bible teaches us to live, to prefer one another, you would think it would be impossible to have a conflict. If we prefer others, we would not have a conflict. We might have a conflict of, no, you're, you're going first. No, no, you're going first, maybe that. But there shouldn't be a conflict. The conflict arises when we want something and it's not coming. You can't think, well, I want it to be like this. Most conflicts that I've seen in church, really, some of them are over trivial matters. Somebody sat in my seat. Then it's over stylistic issues. Well, worship has changed and I like the old songs. And I understand all of those things, but if we are preferring other people, it doesn't matter. I mean, realistically speaking, if I can read the words of a hymn, I can sing it. I might not feel as emotional as a song that I was singing when I got saved and I had a massive emotional experience and every time I sing that song again, I feel that and I want that all the time, but it's not about me. In fact, church is not about any of us, it's about Jesus. Now there is a challenge here, that doesn't mean everything goes, that doesn't mean there should not be conflict, because Paul does say that we have conflict to show those who belong to God and those who don't. It doesn't mitigate error. We need to make sure that there is an agreement and it is based around what the scriptures teach and the scriptures are always the place of authority. Whenever I hit an area of conflict, I go back, what did God say through the Bible. How do we do this? Well, we need to thrash it out with other believers. We need to use the scriptures. One thing that I'll probably say loud and clear this morning, experience and feelings are insufficient in arriving at clear truth. I've noticed it quite a bit that when we look at things where people are having a disagreement, they think that if I talk about my experience, that makes me right. No, it doesn't. We can have wrong experiences. 
It's about truth. It's about fixing it in truth. That doesn't mean that we sideline experience and feelings. No, no, we need to talk about those things. But it means that when we come to a way forward, it has to come out of Scripture and it has to be something that Scripture leads us forward in. Sometimes we need to agree to disagree. Now that sounds really simple, but in my experience of 30 years in ministry, I know very few people who can do that. People say, okay, let's agree to disagree, and then the next sentence they try to persuade you again. Now, we can agree to disagree on some things. Whether you put your hands up and worship or not, doesn't matter. Whether you, you wear your Sunday best when you come to church or jeans, doesn't really matter. A lot of these things don't matter. Whether we break bread every Sunday or not, doesn't actually matter. The fact that we should be breaking bread is the important point. And so on some of those things, we agree to disagree. We can't agree to disagree on Jesus died for our sin. Doesn't, doesn't work, does it? Can't say, well, you know, I believe Jesus died for my sin. Well, I don't. Say, so, well, then you're going to hell because you've still got sin. So there are some major things in the Bible that we can't disagree over. But I would say 99% of disagreements that we have or conflicts that we have arise out of things that are not major issues. So how does Paul deal with this? Notice how one of the factions was for Paul. Yeah, They said, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't side with any faction, even the ones that are raising him up. Why doesn't he do that? Because he says the very fact that there are factions proves that we are divisive. He does not join in in taking sides. If you are ever called to be a mediator between two people, the worst thing you can ever do is to take sides. And Paul very clearly here does not take any side. He says, no, he says this whole divisiveness is wrong. And Paul is brilliant because he tackles this by asking three rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is a question that has the answer in the question before it's even given. And the answer to all three of these questions from Paul is an emphatic no. First question. Is Christ divided? No, he's not. Was Paul crucified for you? Well, no, he was not. Were you baptised into the name of Paul? No, you were not. All three questions lead us to Jesus Christ. We've already seen that Paul called the, the church of God at Corinth and he's highlighting that the oneness of the church is through Jesus Christ. I mean, let's face it. We probably wouldn't be a gathering of people together if it wasn't for Jesus. We are brought together because of Jesus. That is what creates our unity. It is Jesus Christ who brings us together. Paul says really clearly, Christ died for you, nobody else. Not Apollos, not Cephas, not Paul. It was Jesus. Paul makes the point in saying, you were baptised into whom? Not any human being, into Jesus Christ. 
The unity in church comes through Jesus Christ. He is the head. He calls and appoints leaders. He was crucified for believers and we are baptised into his name. It is all about Jesus. Divisions come when we make it about us. And instead of Jesus, we say, well, well, but I want it like this. Well, maybe that's not the way Jesus wants. He is the one. The simple answer to division is to make everything about Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that this is simple. I'm not saying that this is easy. But it's certainly the path to a unified church. I also don't believe that this can fix every disagreement. It should, but human nature can scupper it. I've sadly been involved in some things where in the end people are just not able to forgive and not able to deal with things. For this to work, Christ needs to be at the centre. That's why this does not work for a non-believing context. But it challenges us in how we approach disagreement. Let me say to you, internalising your disagreement will only cause it to fester and rear its head at some other point. It's one of the things that I really praise God for is that I have quite a short memory on some of these things. When we hold something in our heart against somebody else, the only person you are damaging is yourself. Because it's creating turmoil in you and a lack of peace. I want to mention six brief steps in how we can handle conflict. Number one, check your heart. I've realised over the years that you will never overcome conflict with a hurt or angry heart. You won't do it. If you go to talk to the person and you are feeling hurt and angry, that will come out in your conversation and instead of making the wound better, you will make it worse. So how do we do that? Well, we need to deal with this before God alone. I found in 99.999% of all the conflicts that I face, I've had to get on my knees and repent first. Even where I think I've done nothing wrong, I've got to repent and say to God, I have been offended and I'm angry about it and I ask you to forgive me. And I don't do anything until I come out of that with a position of peace in my heart and I don't feel any animosity towards the other person. There is a litmus test here. If you have adequately dealt with your feelings of anger and hurt with the other person, you will be able to pray with real earnestness that God will bless that person. That's the test. When you think, yeah, it's all okay, say, okay, will you pray that that person would be blessed, that their finances would be blessed, that their relationships would be blessed, that God would make his face shine upon them, and all of a sudden you go, <clears throat> don't want to pray that. Well, then there's still a problem. And we've got to deal with that with God. We cannot deal with that with other people because we will always be coming out of our hurt and anger. We need to go to God and we need to get healing and release and then we can move on. Step one.
Step two, talk and listen. And there is a really simple one that we all know. We have one mouth and two ears. So we listen more than we speak. Now, talking and listening sounds simple, but very often when people talk and listen, they are only listening in as much as they want to gain fuel for their own argument. That is not talking and listening. Listening is really trying to work out, what are you saying? I want to understand the problem from your perspective. I want to see it the way you see it. And you ask the questions that help you to do that. Why were you so angry? How did that offend you? What was done within it that caused a problem? And then you listen. And you don't listen in a defensive mode that as soon as they say, well, the way you did this, you think, well, I only, as soon as you go, well, I only, you're, you're defending. You've got to take it on the chin. And you've got to say, look, I'm really sorry. I didn't intend to offend you here. I'm sorry that I said it like this and it caused you offense. I'm really sorry about that. You listen, and as both sides do that and understand, then there is a measure of healing that begins to occur in the relationship. Number three. We will hit times where there is simply no agreement. What do we do? Well, at those points of disagreement, the Bible is the sole arbiter of truth. There's a really big but in my notes here. And the but is here because it means this does not include every privately held interpretation of a verse. In over 30 years of ministry, I've had people come and give me a scripture and tell me what it means, and the two do not work together. I'm thinking, how do you see that? What does that mean? It means that if there is a disagreement, we need to go to somebody else who properly understands the scriptures, an elder, a teacher, a preacher, somebody who has a recognized gift in the scripture and say, what is the answer to this issue? And then we need to listen. And they may not side with us. I went many years ago, I went to a conference in India, and they asked me this difficult question about should Christians drink alcohol? And in the Indian culture, drinking alcohol is really bad. And so they were all expecting me to stand up and say, if you drink alcohol, it's the devil's vomit and you're going to hell. Well, I didn't say that. I said, the Bible says very clearly drunkenness is wrong, but it does not say that drinking alcohol in moderation is a sin. And then people would quote, well, um, beer, no, beer is a mocker and wine, it was a beer is a brawler, wine is a mocker, they'd quote. But the problem is they would quote single verses and not the whole testimony of Scripture. I mean, the worst was... When we quoted Timothy, when, when Paul says to him, take a little wine for your stomach, their understanding was that he rubbed it in. <laughs> Come on. And so we've, we've got to listen to what the Bible teaches us. Now, when I'd said all that at the conference, and, and the people who obviously wanted to drink alcohol were very happy, I then said, but the Bible is a bit broader than that. 
The Bible says that I shouldn't be doing anything in terms of food or drink that offends other people. And then they weren't so happy and the other guys were really happy. And I said, you, you know, it was a difficult thing, but we've got to work out the Bible says you can do, but don't do something that causes your brother to stumble. Yeah. But you also shouldn't live in a legalism, because let's be honest, legalism doesn't help anybody anyway. And so where there is a disagreement, we need to find someone who will help us. And that's number four, is use a mediator. Conflict causes pain, it can be difficult to remain objective, and so we need to find someone to mediate. This needs to be a spiritually wise person. And not just somebody you think is spiritually wise, but somebody who is recognized in your church community as a wise person, an elder. Somebody who carries something in God. And both people need to be happy with that mediator. You can't say, I've chosen as mediator my wife. She will be impartial. No, she will not be. Choose wisely. Number five, clothe everything in prayer. It should be suffice to say that when we're dealing with conflict, we are in a continual position of praying. We're praying before, we're praying during, we're praying after. We are praying all the time and asking God to help us. Number six, and this is the hardest out of all of them. You need to forgive. Let me say that again. You need to forgive. Conflict causes hurt. Hurt needs to be forgiven. And here's the warning. Let me tell you, this one carries a warning with it. Should we fail to forgive, at the point we stop forgiving, God stops forgiving us. Years ago, I, I was listening to a preacher, I've mentioned this before, and he was preaching about forgiveness, and at the end of the service, this person came up to him and said, I have not been able to forgive this individual for what they did for 30 years. And he said, my dear, that means for the last 30 years, everything that you have done has not been forgiven. You do not want to go down that road. You really do not want to go down that road. You know, we are thankful for God's grace and mercy. You know what? For any of the sins we've done, God could just destroy us. I mean, we're a sinful bunch of people because we're people. And yet we are so thankful for God's forgiveness. And God's expectation is that we forgive other people. It's a condition. Forgiveness that, you know... Here's the other part of forgiveness that, that we often make a mistake in. You don't have to feel that you're going to forgive them to do it. Forgiving somebody is a very simple decision of your will. It is not a feeling that you have to have. And even though when you have two children fighting, you say, say sorry, and he goes, sorry! Even though that's not the ideal, that is still better than nothing. And let me tell you from experience that 
in my times where I've had to do this, I have probably had to, to forgive the person a thousand times. Because it keeps coming back. And I keep feeling angry again. I keep saying, sorry, Lord, I forgive that person. But it's a healing process. And each time I do it, it gets less and less and less and less and less and less and less until all of a sudden I am healed. I'm not saying that you say, I forgive you and that's it. You know, it's like it never happened. You feel great and what have you. No, quite often it's still a heavy load, but you keep working it out with Jesus. But forgiveness is absolutely crucial to the healing process. My daughter had an accident. I won't tell you how, otherwise you'd shoot me. My daughter had an accident where she sliced her thumb. This was a good while ago. And we took her to A&E. Blood coming out everywhere. Did the whole first aid stuff. Took her to A&E. And they put all the stuff in, cleaned it all up. It was painful. She didn't like it because they opened the wound. You know how they do? You go, oh, look at that. And swab it all out, this, that, and the other. Um, and then sent her home. But after eight hours, it was still weeping. So I was concerned. So I took, took her back. And they were pulling off this stuck plaster. And it was pulling the wound apart. And she's going all... But the difficulty is, had she not done that, it would get infected. And I think if we kind of think, well, we don't want that. We don't, you know, when somebody hurts themselves, they hold it and they don't want anybody to see it because they know that's going to hurt more. But if you don't do that, it won't ever get healed. And the worst is that it can end up being infected. You get sepsis and you die. You know, forgiveness is the same thing. That it's painful, but we've got to do it. We've got to forgive other people. We've got to say, look, I forgive you. I don't feel it. I don't want to say it, but I'm out of my will choosing. And as you keep doing it, you will begin to feel it. You will begin to choose it because all of a sudden you're finding that there is healing in your heart. You know, I've met people over the years who don't forgive and they become bitter. They become angry. They become people that you do not want to spend time with and you don't want to become like that. And worse still, they become people who stand before Jesus and he says, I cannot forgive you because you have not forgiven. So that's it. Simple solution. Conflict that we have. And I want to encourage you this morning that if there are people in your life that you have a conflict with. Now, if they're not Christians, there's not much you can do. You can pray. But you can still forgive. If they're Christian or non-Christian, you can still forgive. But if there are people you know who are part of your family, who are, part, who are believers, then maybe it's time to try and heal some of that. Not saying that, you know, this is a super miracle for everything. No, we need to pray. We need for God to open the door. I've got situations that have been going on for years that I've been trying to get some uh, conflict resolution in, but there's nothing I can do. It's out of my hands. If the other person isn't willing, there is nothing you can do, but you can pray. And so we pray about these things and say, Lord, would you open the door? Would you work in that situation?